Issues Etc. guest Dr. Rod Rosenblatt died on February 2nd, 2024. In his memory, we present this Issues Etc. Encore. Welcome to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Do you remember how sweet the gospel sounded to you? That that hour you first believed, like the old song says, how sweet it sounded to know that your sins were forgiven, to know that everything had been paid at the cross to know that you stood before God completely righteous, forgiven, declared innocent. Maybe it was a long time ago for you. How are things lately? Have you heard the sweetness of that gospel lately? Is that gospel, that sweet word of forgiveness, once and for all accomplished by Christ from beginning to end, still for you? Or have you been told to move on to more important and pressing matters in the Christian life? Is it getting you down? Are you burnt out on the church? Because that what was once so sweet has now turned somewhat sour. We're going to talk about moralism and legalism tonight on Issues Etc. Rod Rosenblatt is a regular guest here on Issues Etc. He's professor of systematic theology and Christian apologetics at Concordia University in Irvine, California co-host of the national radio show called The White Horse Inn. Rod, welcome back to Issues Etc. Good to be here. We're going to be talking about moralism and legalism in doctrine and practice in many evangelical congregations. In contrast to that sweet, sweet gospel, before we begin, let's define the gospel as Scripture defines it. Well, let me read a few verses uh, that sum it up in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll start at the very beginning and uh, read seven or eight verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you all which you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, and so forth. He lists more witnesses. Um, The gospel is that news that Christ has died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was entombed for three days, and then raised again the third day. Now someone says, I remember that. Uh, That sounds vaguely familiar to me. It was back when I got saved at first. But, Rod, what usually happens in in many evangelical congregations after that message is preached to the unbeliever and they are brought to faith? Well, all too often, you know, John Wesley's behind much of the the evangelical program, and Wesley was very clear that uh, in instructing his pastors what he wanted them to do, First, he wanted them to preach Christ to pagans, and in my book he gets an A for that. And then secondly, once people were roundly and soundly converted to Jesus, he wanted his pastors to urge them on uh, 
to Christian perfection. That's what they were called to do with those who were uh, Christian believers. And so what that meant was that he instructed his pastors on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis to use the scriptures uh, to exhort them uh, on to Christian perfection. And what's wrong with this? Well, the whole idea of Christian perfection, the Lutherans met in Rome. Wesley was, was a couple of centuries later, but they'd already met it in Rome. Um, the belief that we can, before we die, somehow, uh, even with the help of the Holy Spirit within us, get to where we aren't sinning or where we are perfected before God is a false hope. Now, if this is a false hope, why is it that many evangelical churches are following this pattern, bring them to faith with the gospel, and then urge them on toward what you say is a false hope of perfectionism? um, The best I can say is try a few of Wesley's sermons. Uh, He will use the scriptures. He will use Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He'll use 1 John. He that is born of God does not commit sin. And he really does use the scriptures to argue as if there are two stages to the Christian life. The first stage is when the Spirit of God enables you to be born again and believe in Jesus. And then there's a long period of time, he said, usually between that stage and then another stage in which you actually achieve Christian perfection. Now, Reformation folk believe that he's misreading um, those scriptures that, that sound as if we can do that on our own steam or with the Spirit's help. Um, one of the Luther, things that Luther talked a lot about was that the Christian life is being simultaneously justified before God and a sinner, same time. So are you saying, Rod, that Christians, even after believing, still need to hear the gospel that brought them to faith on exactly. a regular basis? Exactly. And it was interesting, as I taught in an evangelical college for several years, I I would say to my classes, um, the only place you've really heard the gospel preached in your churches is at an evangelistic meeting. And if I say to you that the believer needs the gospel preached to him, you don't have a category for it. You, You have imagined bad evangelistic meetings where Uh, The organist is playing almost persuaded, or just as I am, for 43 verses, um, and everybody knows that everybody's uncomfortable with it, because um, it's sort of a, even if you are a believer, by the time the organist has played it for 27 verses, you wonder if you are. Uh, That's not what Reformation folk mean by preaching the gospel to people who are believers. Not some kind of evangelistic meeting like that. Those who know that they are Christians, need the, the food and sustenance of Christ proclaimed into their earballs Sunday after Sunday. So it's not about the Christian being converted every Sunday no, by the gospel? No, not at all. It, it's, a, it's the sustenance of it, because the old Adam in us is stronger than we like to admit. And if we're really sensitive to our sin, great theologians have said that if you are being sanctified, what you end up noticing is the depth of your sin to an even greater extent. And it's very easy to say to yourself, well, um, I thought I was born again, but uh, the longer and longer it goes, it seems the worse and worse it gets inside. Maybe it never took. Okay, let's see if we can play out this scenario, because you've mentioned this a couple times, Rod, that there is this pattern 
where it's it's a flush with uh, the, kind of the new infatuation of the new believer and the gospel sweetness is all around and yep. and and uh, and everything looks bright for the future and then what happens and what is the result well our in our categories uh, and i think they're some of the most enlightening that anybody's got we tend to view this in terms of law and gospel and and most of us would say it's a bad or a, it's a mixing of the two in a way that isn't helpful to the to the new believer um, if we're to if the pastor is to well separate law from gospel then the gospel should remain just as sweet as ever the believer we'll talk about it later probably that the believer does need to hear the law but the the that part most people recognize in some way or another it's that we need to have the sustenance for what's been proclaimed to us at the start continually um, proclaimed to us and that means the pastor preaching gospel to us uh, because the preaching of the law is something really we already know in our hearts that's romans 2 um, but the gospel isn't it, it has to be continually you know pounded in from the outside luther said our guest is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. We're talking about moralism and legalism. When we come back from this break, we'll talk about the soft core moralism and legalism, kind of the uh, what, the quality of life Christian teaching that you get, a better quality marriage, a better quality family, a better quality business relationship, a better quality life, if you just do these following things. And then, of course, there's also the hardcore version of legalism and moralism. In other words, do this or there will be consequences divine consequences. We'll talk about both of those. It's this simple to sum up this first 10 minutes or so. What brings you to Jesus Christ is the same thing that keeps you in Jesus Christ, that gospel. The thing that first told you of the forgiveness of sins, the message that first engendered faith in your heart and made you a Christian, is the very same message that keeps you a Christian. You know that we love our on-demand listeners, and that's why we've produced this Issues Etc. Classic. Now, if you appreciate this special broadcast, please consider making a tax-deductible gift to support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by check. Make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio and send it to LPR Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois 62234. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support during the challenging summer months. Rod, it seems to me there's kind of a gradation of moralism and legalism that you would find in many evangelical churches. From um, on the one end of the spectrum, you've got kind of the rank prosperity promise, which is if you lead a life toward this Christian perfectionism, tithing, obedience to various house rules and commands, then you will be prospered. You may even get rich, things like that. In the middle, there's this kind of soft core quality of life promise, which is, you know, you'll, your life will just be better, a better quality marriage, family, business, whatnot. And then there's the hardcore end of the spectrum, which is do this or God is going to get you. Is it all the same thing? Well, I think that's a fair distinction. The first one really is almost all Pentecostals. That first one you mentioned, the word faith, guys. Um, many, most evangelicals, I think, would, would shake their heads at that. But the second two, definitely. 
absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Now, is are we making a distinction here between moralism and legalism? Are we basically using two terms to describe I, one thing? You know, I don't know that, that those really... If somebody knows the distinction between those, I just don't. Um, moralism tends to tends to say that the basic message of the church is uh, so that people's morals can be improved. And when I was taught, legalism um, was really, uh, you know, a sort of a binding contract such that if you didn't keep your end of the deal, as you said, you're in trouble with God. Um, But they're both cut from the same cloth. Now, you talk about the sad and the mad alumnus from or alumni from from the church who is who are the sad alumni from the church well they're those people that you described earlier um the ones that had that wonderful experience of coming to faith in christ and uh and as they came to a parish or a congregation in the long run uh if wesley was doing what wesley trained his people to do, if they were trained to buy him, sort of, there's a place in which, in trying to get them to that second experience, the regular diet they get by instruction from Wesley is the law. It's a form of the law. Now, it can be kind of uh, uh, Orange County, lightweight, um, happy-sounding, but it's still law. Uh, If you will follow these recipes, here's the way in which God will bless your marriage, Here's the way you can raise drug-free kids. Um, there are all sorts of, of sorts of ways in which it manifests itself, but if you ask, is it in the category law or gospel, it's in the category law. And most of us, sinners that we are, um, to sit under that without variation, it does its work on us inside, in our brains and in our guts and in our heart. Uh, we can do this in the Reformation, too, by what we call the third use of the law. If we do that badly, we'll be doing the same sort of thing. And, uh, and the, the Christian who at first said, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life, then over the long run, finding out how much he doesn't live up to what Christ expects of him, sometimes will say, you know, I was happier when I was outside of Christ than I am now when I'm in him. I think I'll leave. Is it because the burden is laid there that Christ brings you to faith, but you keep yourself yeah, in faith? Yeah, I think, I think that's one way of putting it. Or it's saying that the message of the gospel is totally free at the beginning, um, but now that you're a Christian, what you need to listen to and hear about regularly more than anything else is what he expects of you and your commitment. I was talking some time back with Craig Pardon. And he was talking about his experiences in evangelicalism. Uh-huh. And he said the gospel was there for him when he was an unbeliever and when he first came to faith. Right. But once they, they got him, he, he put it this way. The, the gospel message was withdrawn uh-huh. from the, the regular Christian congregation. And in its place were the rules soft and hard for Christian living. Yep. Is that what we're talking about? That's exactly what we're talking about. And Craig lived it. I, it was sort of the same thing I got in Lutheran pietism. The connections between Wesley and Lutheran pietism are intimate. Now, are you saying that Christians don't need to hear the law after being brought to faith? Not really. Uh, there is a third use of the law, and probably do our Lutheran listeners, you know, good to look that up in the Formula of Concord and read it themselves. It's in the Book of Concord. And to read that, 
But at the same time, I really would encourage our people to read Walter's Long Gospel, or God's Yes and God's No, the lighter weight version, the kind of Reader's Digest version. Because as he puts the quotes in, usually, usually we have, all of us, spoken them one way or another as to what we suspect God is toward us as we're in Christian failure. Walter had a feel for that. And uh, though what we write in the Book of Concord is formal and accurate, uh, what Walter writes is worth listening to as well, because many times we'll say, wait a minute, that's not what, only what my church does, it's also how I think. Okay, so I was a sinner, and then I heard the message of the gospel that my sins had been paid for by Christ on the mm -hmm. cross. And you're utterly free. And now I find myself sinning again. I had an excuse before, yes. because yes. of course I was an unbelieving sinner. Yes. I have no excuse now. What is the real answer to a Christian who sounds like they're just about to have the last straw broken when they're saying something like that? The message of the gospel is better than you're even imagining. It is beyond, it is so good and so generous and so benevolent on God's part that it's beyond what you even would guess. Um, many times, the, I'm a pastor, so I can criticize me and uh, pastors, and we preach sometimes too much of the law to people, and it isn't what's called for at all. Walther's book is a sort of plea. In many cases, the person who's sad after a while feels certain that whatever it was that did the trick in the beginning, Jesus and his shed blood and the cross alone, somehow isn't enough anymore. And I, as a pastor, can do that to them by a confusion of law and gospel. In many cases, what those people who are just broken need to hear is the gospel. Um, when I did that paper in, uh, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, I just plucked out a few verses, and people can find them there, and they're completely without qualification. Not if you, or not on condition that, or any. And if it's the case, that Jesus says this to sinners, we still qualify as that. Christians still qualify as sinners. Boy, do we ever. And the question is, is the cross enough to save a failing Christian, or isn't it? And it seems to me the Reformation answer is, it is enough to save a failing Christian. So the fact that I keep on sinning after I have been brought to faith by the gospel may not be evidence that I'm not really a believer after all, like absolutely. I thought I was? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you should almost be pre-warned that now you're going to be under attack. Before you were one of his, you didn't have to, he didn't have to worry about you too much. Now you're going to be under attack. And one of the attacks is going to be that. That is, if this really was true, or if you really were sincere enough, things would be getting better faster than they're getting better. In fact, they're getting worse. And so the attack comes that Christ really isn't enough, or you didn't believe enough. We're going to take a break. When we come back, why preach the law of God before preaching the good news and promises of the gospel? Why not, like Wesley says, first preach the gospel and then later preach the law? And we'll also talk about those mad alumni from the church as well. What are they really mad at? Folks, the gospel is free, but producing this show isn't. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Issues Etc. today. Rod, why 
in every case from the pulpit for believers and for unbelievers, why preach God's law before preaching the good news of forgiveness in Christ, the gospel? Okay, could I back up on something you closed with just before the break? Sure. You're talking about Wesley, um, and I think Wesley as evangelist was not too bad compared to Wesley as teacher of theology. He really did preach the law and Christ as an evangelist. I wish he would have just stayed in that profession, and things wouldn't have been too bad. Uh, things were worse when you turn yourself as a Christian into Wesley's hands. That's when, that's when you're in trouble. Now, very quickly, uh, who is Wesley? Some may not be familiar okay. with this guy. John Wesley it lived the whole 18th century. He was born in it early and died almost at its end. He's, in a history book, you'd be told that he was the founder of Methodism. Um, he uh, was a, a priest in the Church of England, was bothered about his uh, salvation and couldn't seem to be assured of it, uh, and through a long series of events and an attempt to be a missionary here in America, and linking up with some Moravian, what are called Moravian brethren, break off Lutherans, he finally had an experience listening to somebody read Luther, the preface to Luther's uh, uh, commentary on Galatians, and finally had that inner experience, he said, and I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I knew that Christ had died even for me. Uh, it's an experientially grounded form of Christianity that is now reflected um, not only in the holiness groups, Nazarene, Christian Missionary Alliance, um, Salvation Army, um, but also in Free Methodism, Wesleyan Methodism, um, and finally now in the, um, the megachurches. His thought is behind most of the megachurch movement. The thing that, besides it being founded deeply experientially, uh, the other thing is that, that you have... Uh, a sort of a normal preaching of the law to people who are believers, and that's the regular diet that he told them to, to give them, uh, to urge them on to Christian perfection. 18th century giant figure uh, has affected uh, American and British Christianity more than almost anybody else around. So, back to that question, why to both the unbeliever and the Christian preach God's law first and than the gospel. Okay. In the case of the unbeliever, um, we need to know as unbelievers that God doesn't grade the final on the curve. In other words, we need to hear the extent of the demand of the law and its absolute perfection. We are to live the life that Christ lived, and if we don't, we're under condemnation. We are without hope. Uh, we will be judged, and the judgment will be everlasting condemnation. We tend to think that we're better than Charlie down the street. If you want the fancy Latin, that's uh, seeing ourselves quorum hominibus as compared to our friend at work, and we're better than he is. We tend to fall into that, that God will certainly respect that we're better than the next guy. But the law doesn't read like that. And until we get to the point where it comes through to us that just the slightest breaking of the law has us set against our Creator and we can't fix it, and we're condemned, the preaching of Christ and his cross simply isn't needed. Um, I remember when I was working on a college campuses, if somebody was light on preaching the law, in some cases somebody would say, uh, when they were told that God loved them, he said, well, next time you talk to him, tell him thanks. I can use all the love I can get. I've heard uh, it was uh, 
Uh, Bob Passantino, a regular guest on this program, uh -huh. say that uh, in his days uh, before becoming a Christian, that was precisely his response. Right. He was very happy that uh, Jesus uh, was so favorably disposed toward him, but he didn't really <laughs> care too much. Yeah, yeah, kind of nice. I mean, given the situation, it could be that he didn't, but it's nice that he does. Rod, you said something before. You said it all comes down to the question, can the cross and blood of Christ save a Christian failing as he or she is living the Christian life, or can it not? Yeah, that really, with the ones who are sad, that really is the question. Is it true or is it not true that just Jesus' blood shed for me on the cross can save me? Because my Christian sins now are even worse. I've been given all the blessings of God. I've been baptized into, into Christ. All of these things have been freely given to me, and I'm still screwing up. Is Christ's blood enough to save me? And I think the only Reformation and Lutheran answer to that is absolutely. I wrote in this article, we failures in living the Christian life as described in the Bible will probably say something like this when we get into heaven. You mean it was that simple? Just Christ's cross and blood? Just his righteousness imputed to my account as if it were mine? You've got to be kidding me. And what I had said just prior to that was that we, we probably will be not just walking into heaven, but walking or welcomed into heaven leaping like a calf leaping out of its stall. That's from Isaiah. Laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. If just Christ's cross and blood saves, then Christ's cross and blood are greater even than my Christian sin. Okay. We've talked about the sad alumnus. Who is the mad alumnus from Christianity? Well, those are usually the ones who've had the same sort of law done to them, and it just makes them mad because it sounds like um, they're going to be punished anyway, uh, that Christianity is basically a moral makeover program, and, uh, and the law is going to be judged over their heads, and, uh, and they simply get mad at it and walk out. You know, they just say, I've had it with this. Um, I tried it. It didn't seem to make good on the promises of the better life that they said it was going to be. And, and when I told them that, they said, well, you're not doing it right. So then I tried to do it right. And when it didn't work out the way it sounded like it was supposed to, then somebody said, you're still not doing it right. And they get mad at it. It sounds as though the mad alumnus is the sad alumnus who stuck it out and uh, actually heard full force what this was really all about. In other words, look, uh, Jesus was good enough to save you, but you're going to have to improve from there on. Yes. Yeah. That's, if the pastor doesn't say it to him, or a teacher doesn't say it to him, the, the lawyer in their own head says it to him. So what is wrong with all that? What sounds like sanctified good advice? You need to pray harder. You need to um, uh, concentrate more. You need to study your Bible a little bit more. Then you'll see some improvement. What's wrong with it? Yeah. It's it's that it's completely misdirected. That is, Christianity from beginning to end and from the beginning of our life to the end of our life focuses on the rescue, the great rescue of those who didn't want it, uh, who hated the rescuer. Um, the central thing is not how he remakes us. The central thing is that he is our rescuer, and it happens again and again and again, not in the sense of re-saved, but in the sense of being told and promised again, what you trusted in the beginning is still going to work. 
and it's not primarily about changing you. It's about Christ one afternoon changed the Father's attitude toward you by taking what you deserved and substituting for you. That's Christianity. Christianity is primarily about substitution, not about improvement. For this break, let's talk with Keith, who's calling from Colorado Springs, listening on KGFT. Keith, welcome to Issues Etc. Hey, how you doing? I appreciate your show. Thank you. Good. I I uh, just have a couple comments, really. Um, I, I think this is really a good discussion. I grew up um, in a denomination that was strongly uh, Calvinist, and currently... Uh, belong to a denomination that is Wesleyan, and uh, I've kind of seen the uh, issues uh, discussed from both sides, and and uh, one of the things that I would like to comment on is uh, something I've learned in recent years is this really doesn't boil down to an issue of salvation, uh, you know, when we're talking about uh, growing in Christ. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not that we do things to get saved. Uh, we do things because we are saved, because we are a new creature in Christ. And these, you know, the growing is not something we attain by human effort, but really it's quite the opposite. It's something, uh, it's an issue of sovereignty. Um, the holiness message as I see it, as I see Wesleyan teaching is, is giving up sovereignty and following Christ day by day, issue by issue. So when you're confronted with something, you, you follow that mind of Christ, you follow that the, the Holy Spirit's leading, and, it, and it's not something you do through your effort, but it's something that you do because you've yielded yourself to his leading. All right, now, but this yielding, I mean, if, it's a, if it is something that a Christian must do, mm-hmm. does it need to be done perfectly, Keith? Well, I, I think uh, with the, uh, the verbiage you just used, uh, need to be done. What, what do you mean by need to be done? Uh, the way I see that, you know, again, we're, we're, we're taking it back to an issue of salvation, um, where I see it as an issue of servitude and spiritual growth after salvation. Keith, thank you very much for the call. Rod, we've got about uh, 30 seconds here before this break. Why don't you begin an answer to Keith's call? Well, I'm grateful, you know, that that business of it doesn't have to do with his salvation. I'm glad for every Wesleyan who discovers that. But Wesley himself counseled that to people, if you haven't pursued holiness with everything that's within you, and you imagine that when the time comes at the judgment that just the imputed righteousness will save you, um, you're, you're looking up the wrong thing, or you're barking up the wrong tree, or you've got a hope that really uh, you ought not have. Wesley was more intense than that. Like what you hear? Please support this worldwide outreach with a tax-deductible contribution today. Rod, before the break, we had Keith on the line, Mm -hmm. and you had an opportunity to chime in that all these things done in the Christian life in no way contribute to Christianity. Do you have any concerns about uh, Keith's take on the Christian faith and Christian life? I used to talk to my Westmont students, and I'd say, You know, when they were in victory mode, there was no way through the armor. Everything was great, and it was going upwards. But things like that have a way of not sustaining. Uh, Life throws us just about everything, or can. And the key thing then is, when everything looks without hope, and when you take a look and you say, but it isn't getting better, if anything, it's getting worse, Um, then the question is, is the death of Christ enough, or isn't it? 
And the Reformation answer is, especially the Lutheran, yes, it is. The death of Christ saves all by itself. Mike is calling from Overland Park, Kansas, listening on KCCV. Mike, welcome to Issues Etc. Thanks for waiting. Hey, pastors, how are you doing? Very well. Um, I used to attend a Baptist church where you, uh, I remember one sermon in particular where the pastor just kept on hammering home, you know, he took, you know, he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, you got to thirst for righteousness, and this guy would just go on and on about how we have to thirst for righteousness like it, like his fat cat is always thirsting for food and we have to not be satisfied and always be thirsting for righteousness. I just want to ask you guys if this is an example of what, you, of what you're talking about. Thanks for the question, Mike. Yeah, it yeah. really is. And, uh, and one of the places you can see sermons like this, Wesley's the best. They just go to Wesley's sermons. They'll, they'll give it to you when he starts talking about some aspect of the Christian life. Uh, he'll do it. But another one is the popular writer A.W. Tozer. And, uh, and you, if you are a Christian, by the end of some of those things, when you say, but I don't thirst after righteousness, I've tried as hard as I can, and I can't seem to get myself to where I'm thirsting after righteousness. And then the next thought is, maybe I'm not really born again. There's where, there's where it cuts. So what is a proper preaching, to use his example, of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I, I think that, that it is, first of all, um, some brethren might disagree with me on this, but I think it's some of the strongest law we find in all of the Bible. Um, I think about a passage, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I say... Gee, I sure hope I'm meek, because I do want to be one of them, the ones that receives the promise. And then I look at myself and say, how meek am I? And the answer isn't good. And I can go through line after line after line of that, of the Sermon on the Mount, and I find I don't measure up. Now, we've talked about the sad. We have talked about the mad. What should the church's message be to both of these alumni from from Christianity? Well, the ones that are mad, one of the things I discovered just by accident one night, or Providence, was I was watching a show after the uh, comedian Sam Kinison was killed in a car accident outside Las Vegas on the highway. And in the midst of this, he had said such anti-Christian things for so much of the latter part of his life, Uh, grew up a um, Pentecostal evangelist at age six or eight or something, and was utterly mad uh, across the board, it sounded like, at Christianity. And they interviewed Sam Kinison's brother. And Sam Kinison's brother held Sam's arm in his arms as Sam died. And as the, as the interviewer on 60 Minutes or one of those shows said, well, what about, what about Sam's hatred of Christ? And, and his brother said, you think Sam hated Christ? You're wrong. You'll meet him in heaven. Uh, he didn't hate Christ. He wasn't angry at Christ. He was angry at the church. And I thought, there it is. There it is. I can say to the guy who's really angry, oh, is that it? You're ang- well, join the club of those who are angry at the church. Um, he, there was his brother giving the answer to it right then. Sam had had it with the church, but he hadn't had it with Jesus. And to the sad? To the sad, it's the gospel in all its sweetness. Uh, it's the passages, I, in the, if people go to the website I mentioned earlier, I listed some of the passages that have no qualification on them, whatever. Be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And when he, the Messiah, comes, he will neither break the bruised reed, that's the cattail hanging by one string, nor quench the smoldering wick. Uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who himself knew no sin. Uh, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that faith in Jesus is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And to the man who does not work, but trusts the one who justifies wicked people, his faith is counted as if it were righteousness, and so forth. That this thing is promise in the beginning, it's promise in the middle, and it's promise at the end. Or it's free at the start, it's free at the middle, and it's free at the end. Let's go straight to the phones, Rod. We'll talk first with Barb, who's calling from Topeka, Kansas. Barb, thanks for waiting, and welcome to Issues Etc. Um, I'm not going to be able to stay on here, and I'll catch your answer on the web tomorrow. Um, my question is, I was raised, um, no need to mention in churches, but I was raised in uh, legalism, though I knew all the law. But I've studied the Bible, I've studied Wesley I've, and Luther, and um, my question is, I guess what I want to say is I believe we are saved by faith through Christ alone. But um, I do know there are people that um, believe they are saved and just by being saved, but they don't live the life at all. And I know the Bible speaks of people that went out from us and it showed that they were not part of us by their going. But um, I think... um, some people have false hope. That's my question, I guess. Can, can you tell who has false hope and who doesn't, Barb? Can I? Yeah. I think I can. I think I can discern it. It's because, you know, if they if they just say, well, I made a profession, you know, but yet they don't seem to care how they're living at all. And no, and do I know for sure? No. I know God knows for sure. Not, not me. But Barb, I, Barb, thank you very much for the call. Rod? Well, um, if the Reformation is correct, and I think it is, the linchpin on which this whole thing turns is our theological confession. Um, And she said in the beginning, I believe we're saved, and I think she meant by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. The, The thing that's in the New Testament most centrally is Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am? or what we believe about his death and what it did for us in particular. Those are major themes in Paul's writings, and they reflect what the Lord himself had said. I think I do understand what she means in the sense that uh, there are people who uh, make some sort of profession of faith very vague, but they aren't even sure, I think, what Christianity is. If you just asked a few simple questions you'd find out that their theological confession is pretty ill-informed. That is a tragic situation, and it's something we pastors are always up against. That is, are we catechizing and teaching the faith once delivered to the saints and teaching it well and accurately? Um, But it's all too common in American Christianity to believe, and it's from Wesley, that we void Christ's work on our behalf on the cross, We void Christ's work in our Christian failure, and as a matter of fact, we do not. 
uh, about the only time that Paul talks about voiding the benefits of Christ's cross was to the Galatians who were going to add the law back in after they talked about Christ's death being enough to save. That passage in Galatians is frightening, but it's theological. It isn't primarily turning the thing on ill behavior. My heavenly days, the, the church of Corinth was a total moral mess. And yet, Paul opens both of those Corinthian letters to the saints who were at Corinth. What he means is, to those who are believers in Jesus at Corinth, did he mean that they were saints in the way that uh, we hear from Roman Catholics? No. Uh, saints is a term for believers. The key thing is, what is exactly your confession uh, and what does it say about the depth of your sin, and what does it say about the greatness of Jesus' blood? Rod, it sounds like then you're like me. I get nervous when I hear someone say, I believe that Jesus Christ has saved me. It's grace alone. It's faith alone. It's Christ alone. But uh-huh. Uh-huh. when that but makes me nervous. Uh-huh. And, and Wesley taught everybody to make it that they should be nervous about, about that. Um, he, he just thought that uh, Reformation Christians had been saved in order to sit. <coughs> now, um, one thing is, uh, is pressing. When I, when I hear a, the caller say, people have made a profession of faith, but, the, but they're not living the life uh-huh. or living the Christian life. I look at my own life. Sure. I'm, I'm not often living the life, and even when I am, if I measure it against of what God requires of me, and in, in, if if only the Ten Commandments are the standard, of course, I am certainly not living the life. And if I measure it against the the requirement of perfect obedience from a pure heart, I am falling so far short that oh. you couldn't even call it the Christian life. Of course, life. I think it's normal Christianity. I do this. I come in Sunday morning to the service saying, tell me again that the death of Christ is so great in its effect that it can even save a theologian. You know? Talking about yourself? Yeah. Yeah, tell me, in the depth of my sin, is his cross greater? And any Wesleyan will say, you're just trying to uh, uh, make the doctrine of sanctification like a wet noodle. And actually, it's the opposite, I think. I I think that Wesley's doctrine leads people to say, I'm doing pretty well. And the Reformation doesn't let us uh, off the hook that easily. We, it's very difficult for me to say I'm doing pretty well in the demands of the, of the Christian life as they're written in Scripture. I'm not. I don't know about you folks, but I never stop needing Jesus. I never <laughs> stop needing the forgiveness 24-7. Yeah. Matt is calling from Shawnee, Oklahoma. Matt, thank you for waiting, and welcome to Issues Etc. Hello? Hello, Matt. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. For your ministry, the things you've been said, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, my question is this: It actually has changed a little bit since the last caller. Um, regarding apostasy, do you think that uh, indifference? Um, I am, of course, I'm a Baptist, so I do not believe you can fall away. But I know a lot who do believe that you can fall away from grace. And um, I'm wondering if this is an essential to Christian evangelism. Okay. okay, let's see if we can handle that. First of all, he talked about indifference, and I think the, the question was, can indifference to, to, to something uh, void, as you said, void the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Yeah, it, it all depends on the object. If, in, if, in, if it is indifference to Christ and what he's done for us, we're pagans. <laughs> if we're indifferent to Christ's cross... 
um, that's a functioning definition of not yet a Christian. If we're despairing of our own tiny faith, that's a whole different thing. Christ's greatness and cross is for those who have tiny faith, not for those who have just for those who have very large faith in Him. The slightest amount of faith in Him uh, is sufficient, and all the promises of God are immediate and inherent. The ones who are worried about falling away uh, usually have been, at least ones I've met, are the ones who have been schooled again by Wesley, where you are in and out of the kingdom six times before lunch due to whatever you're doing morally, inside or outside, internally or externally. And the ones who come over to Lutheranism want to know the answer to that question because we're not Calvinists. They're afraid that they're going to go along and along and along, and then the same trap door that Wesley did to them, that is, you're not doing well enough, you're lost, is going to be true of Lutheranism. When the Lutherans talk about the possibility of apostasy, what they mean is working like crazy within yourself to get rid of what faith in Jesus you've got, to kill it at all costs, dedicate your life to quenching it. Uh, in other words, for us, it's not in and out of the kingdom six times before lunch on moral grounds. It's that you've got to get to where you say, I once believed God was triune, now I don't. I once believed Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel, now I don't believe that anymore. I once believed that Jesus died for the sins of the world, including mine, now I don't believe that anymore. In other words, it's theological to the core. You know that we love our on-demand listeners, and that's why we've produced this Issues Etc. Classic. Now, if you appreciate this special broadcast, please consider making a tax-deductible gift to support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by check. Make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio and send it to LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support during the challenging summer months. Let's talk with Rich. He is calling from Franklinville, New Jersey. Rich, welcome to Issues Etc. Good morning here. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Good to talk to you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, first of all, my disclaimer, I'm not the, uh, probably the best one to defend this view or to present the question, but since uh, those people may not be listening to a reform broadcast, uh, I'm going to ask a couple questions and cite two uh, sources, if I may. I did a study uh, on Wesley's Doctrine of Man that I presented to a class four years ago, and I was able to dig out my notes from that. And I hear a lot on the White Horse Inn. There's a lot of uh, discussion about Wesley. And I'm wondering if he's truly quoted correctly, because the sources I looked up, one one is an Internet download I got from Victor Shepard, who spoke a, uh, a sermon on uh, May 24, 1998, uh, to commemorate May 24, 1738, when he said uh, that Wesley's moralism and legalism were behind him forever. And he made a switch from that to preaching the gospel. Uh, and in, in Wesley's, the second citation would be from Potts, uh, talking about the living thoughts of John Wesley, mm-hmm. uh, wherein he quoted, or Wesley's quoted as saying that he didn't believe in sinless perfection. But mm-hmm. really, it's, it's more of a sanctification process. And uh, he indicated that, uh, quoting Wesley, I believe that conversion, meaning thereby justification, is an in- instantaneous work. And at the moment a man has living faith in Christ, he's converted or justified. And he goes on to say that, you know, even though it's, it's an act by Christ of salvation, that then it's, 
evidence, I guess, in our faith that uh, we show that in our life. And I guess I would relate that also to First Peter, uh, or Second Peter, rather, Second Peter, chapter one, three to eleven, uh, which has been a real big verse, uh, big passage in my life, where Peter seems to indicate uh, seven different processes uh, in our faith being fulfilled by different. Uh, exercises of the faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so forth. All right. Rich, thank you very much. You've given Rod a lot to respond to. First of all, do you think that that Wesley is being uh, popularly misunderstood with regard to this whole issue we've been talking about? Well, I don't think so. Um, I would very much encourage people to get his the little book, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, very short, um, and Wesley is uh, describing his view uh, also, you can get sermons from the collected sermons of John Wesley, and several are on the nature of perfection. Um, but the little book, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, not only has him laying out his views, he was terribly frustrated that people kept asking him the same questions, and he thought he was being so clear on it. And it was very clear that he was frustrated. Um, but in his own words, that's always the place to go. Um, I'm a bit of a Wesley obsessive. I, I am fascinated by Wesley, uh, probably more than I ought be, uh, but I really am. And, and he is totally accessible. His collected sermons are simple to get. Uh, they're in a multi-volume set, but, but it uh, might even be available in public libraries. And, and the best answer to this is simply to, to read what he wrote. And it's not even hard reading. I mean, his sermons are lucid and simple to understand. Um, so I would say pick up sermons on perfection by Wesley and things like that along with the book. All right. Now, uh, the caller mentioned, and this has been mentioned by several callers in this conversation, mm-hmm. mentioned that uh, salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. Wesley it, preached it as, a, as an evangelist like crazy. And that, and that works or the sanctified life then serves as evidence for faith. Now, what is wrong for looking for this evidence for faith in me, as Wesley urged so many to do? All right. Luther, through his experience as an Augustinian monk, came to the conclusion that if we place our confidence in our justification, in our progress in sanctification, or in looking inside to discern our spiritual growth, Luther said, basically what you're going to find is darkness and sin and failure and damnation. Now, why isn't that the case that more people don't find that to be uh, their own experience, at least in America today. I live in Orange County, California. Why not in Orange County, California? The, the, the line that comes to my mind is one that you were talking about earlier, Todd, but it was a remark that Anselm made way back when, Archbishop of Canterbury, 11th, 12th century, and Mike uses, Horton uses it regularly. You've not yet uh, taken into account the depth of your sin, now, what's it's, the point there? Well, it's easy for us to cut the edges and say, well, I'm, I, it isn't that I'm perfect, of course, but I'm doing much better than I did six months ago or a year ago. But that isn't how the law reads in the Bible. It, people will say, well, I know I'm not, nobody's perfect and I'm not fulfilling it, but I think God judges our intents. Well, uh, in the Bible, we find that our intents are a mess, too. Uh, whether we acknowledge it or not, they still are. 
or what's in our heart? Heavenly days in the Bible, what's in our heart is not the answer, it's the problem. Um, the, the real depth of sin is invisible, and it's in the human heart, things that cannot be seen. In other words, if we try to take our spiritual temperature as grounds for our assurance that we're believers, Luther believed, having tried that in 12 ways from Friday, that we would end up in total despair or unbelief. Folks, it's this simple. <clears throat> Rod said before that the law does not judge you in comparison to the next guy, to your neighbor. In other words, when God says, do not kill, you say, well, I haven't really killed. Yes, I have hated my brother, and I know that Jesus says this makes me a murderer in my heart, but I haven't gone out and killed anybody. I can find lots of people to show you who've killed people, and I'm better than they are. The law does not judge you in comparison to the next guy. You know what? The law also does not judge you in comparison to what you used to do, if you're better now. And I would challenge the notion of whether or not you're really better now. Mm -hmm. Maybe we've just found more clever ways of hiding our sin or covering it up. Maybe the root problem is still there, and that is we are still sinners. Not only people who sin, but people who are sinful as well. And it sounds like if that's our case, if that's our situation, we still need Jesus. We still need all of his forgiveness, not just enough to cover the occasional slip or the occasional trouble that we may get ourselves into. We need it all every day. Our call in number 1-800-730-2727, 1-800-730-2727. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt is our guest. Rod, before we go to this break, we've got about 30 seconds here. If we are going to judge ourselves in comparison to what God's law really says about us, will that judgment really be that even for us Christians who believe, we're still just as sinful as we used to be? Yeah, I think it, it becomes such a, a small point that it really almost doesn't even matter. Paul Little used to give the, uh, the illustration of falling overboard when your ship was exactly halfway between San Francisco and Honolulu. And an argument breaks out between those who have fallen into the water as to who's a better swimmer. And the point of it is, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter who's a better swimmer. The point is, the distances are so great, nobody's going to make it. Rod Rosenblatt is our guest. We're talking about moralism and legalism during this hour of Issues Etc. And when we come back, we'll take more of your phone calls. Those of you who are waiting, please continue to be patient. Folks, the gospel is free, but producing this show isn't. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Issues Etc. today. Let's go back to the phones. Tom is calling from Clinton Township, Michigan. Tom, thank you for waiting, and welcome to Issues Etc. You know, in the beginning, we are taught that our salvation depends on our trust in Jesus. And uh, it seems like later on, it's drummed into us subtly that it's really not our trust. It's our willingness or credulity or apprehending a creed. And one of those creeds, the most important, doctrine of the Trinity. So, what's the point here? Well, is our salvation based on our trust in Jesus, or what we believe about his person? Is there a separation there? Not really. There, it, I'll give it to you in the, in the words of Paul Little. It was a nice little couplet he came up with one time. 
He said, with regard to Christianity, first there's something to believe, be believed, and on the basis of that, there's someone to be received or trusted. It's not either or. Those, it's just a logical order. If, if somebody wants to say that they want to trust in Christ, then I hope at least implicitly in that is every passage on his deity, every passage on his humanity, and every passage on his being one person, not two. Um, this is part of what Christianity is. Hold on a second here. Uh, now, it, it sounds as though when what I'm concerned about is that our salvation depends on our trust. And I think we've got to get that one out of the way before anything, Rod. Um, it, it, because okay, well, there's no non-Trinity Christianity. There, there, there is no such bird. But let, okay, let's go on to that. The thing that, that the Reformers were talking about with regard to what saves us, the emphasis was on Jesus' blood more than our trust. In other words, to say that the Bible is teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ's cross alone and his blood alone, you can say faith, but it really is, it turns us back to Jesus and what he did, not to something that's inside of me that somehow trips the switch. Faith does not talk about its own capacities, its own abilities. It always talks about Christ's, his accomplishments, right. his, his deeds. Right. Let's go to Lee, who's calling from Philadelphia. Lee, welcome to Issues, etc. Oh, thank you for taking my call. If uh, you know that you, you do stand convicted of your sins, and you understand that there's no action you can take that'll justify you before God, but, however, you continue to trust and believe in Jesus, uh, complete atonement for your sins, then isn't the very steadfastness of that belief and your faithfulness of your belief a kind of an action you are indeed taking in the hope that you'll be justified before God? Well, in the long run, as long as you don't have any credit for it, yes, you do. Um, but you're going you're gonna to stay at the end. Uh, when you get there, you're going to say, it was a gift to me moment by moment. It may have looked like I was doing it, but by George, it's gonna, we're going to then, when we're face-to-face with him, we're going to say, he kept me moment by moment and gave me that. Lee, thank you very much for the call. I guess I, guess I want to come back to where we were when we started this conversation. The contrast that the sad and the mad mm-hmm. alumni from Christianity often see between that, that moment they first believed as the hymn writer talks mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. when they realized this, this amazing gulf between them as the wretched sinner yep. and Jesus in perfect obedience and righteousness doing it all for them. Yep. Are you simply saying here that that, that, uh, that moment really never ceases for the Christian all throughout their life? No, I, I wish that were true, but no, it's not. Um, but the last thing we need, as, as, the, the, uh, as the Christian life flows and up and down and around, and we go through the mess of what we go through, the last thing we need is for somebody to say that somehow the law trumps the gospel. And in many ways, churches, in teaching the Christian life, can give the idea that, the finally, that finally the law trumps the gospel, and it doesn't. We are called to the Christian life. The descriptions of it are given in the latter part of the Pauline epistles, and so forth and so forth. 
but to the one who's who's um, despairing of whether, because it's not getting any better, whether Christ's cross can save him, the message of the Bible and of the Reformation is, yes, it will. Someone is out there, and they're saying, now, I understand what you are saying, Rod, and I understand how firmly we must continue to cling to that cross, even as a Christian. But I have grown in the faith. There are things that I didn't know when I first became a Christian that I now know. My knowledge of God's Word has been made deeper. Mm-hmm. I, I think there has been some difference, some, some progress. What, how do I refer to this? How do I get a handle on this? I just praise God for it and go back to it. <clears throat> it's a gift from heaven. You know, you look like you're busting your tail to do all of it, and you probably are, but this is a no-credit system. Have a good laugh and go on to the next day of fighting the fight of the Christian life. And at the end, know that we're going to be welcomed in there, and we're not going to be talking about our progress. We're going to talk about, be talking about and praising the great Lamb who got us there. Why, at its very heart, if you would put on that theologian's hat, why is it, that whether it's the theology of Rome, whether it's the theology of Wesley, you said that there's a similar trap door in the Calvinist teaching as well. Why is it that there is always in some way, under the table on top of the table, an insertion of, I get a little bit of credit into this formula that we call salvation? It's a gift from Adam, and it's in you, and it's in me, and it's in all of us. We will fight like crazy to see if we can insert ourselves somehow in here, and, and we'll try 12 teen ways from Friday to do it, to get some credit. A listener in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Blake, writes this. Many pastors who strongly subscribe to a, to a lordship salvation theology, he has that in quotes, mm-hmm. preach law in such a way that the, quote, habitual sinner, like me, is made often to doubt. They cite verses such as 1 John 3, 9. Yep. Then they challenge one to make or his his or her election sure and to examine yourself please speak to these ideas that we are able to look at an objective fruit to realize our salvation okay well the key thing in any doctrinal thing is to examine all the passages on the subject that's first of all not just one suppose your whole theology of prayer were determined by the verse and whatever you ask in my name believing uh, will be granted to you. Suppose that were the only verse you had for prayer. But it isn't the case that that's the only verse we've got for prayer. Uh, in First John, you've got uh, that passage, and you've also got in, in 1, 8, and 10, you know, and, and if we don't, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, you you uh, look for uh, passages like the end of Romans 7, uh, this is a classical divider of the waters. Um, it is written in the present indicative, and Paul says, The things that I want to do, I don't. And the things I hate doing, I'm always doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Paul writes that if it's Paul in the present. He doesn't write it as it were something in the past that he's conquered. When you read through all of these passages, you find um, that that we are continually... Uh, still in the state of sin as compared with the Ten Commandments. We have not uh, lived up to them in thought, word, or deed. And in that case, we are, it is normal to be living a life of confession to God and being absolved. That's normal Christianity. 
A listener in Loveland, Colorado writes this. We've got about uh, two and a half minutes before the break, Rod. I love hearing your message of grace, but I cannot remember this comfort very long after I turn off issues, etc. My LCMS church that the Lutheran Church, Missouri, Senate has gone the way of church growth, and I'm no longer comfortable raising my kids there. Is it better to go to a whacked-out Lutheran church or to a seemingly sincere non-denominational church? Is there a fast way to tell what beliefs of a church are? Oh, man, that is so tough. My heart goes out to that man or woman. Um, It... I have a, a tremendous graduate of mine from when I was back at Westmont. He was one of the few students I've ever had who has a 1600, had a 1600 SAT score, 800 verbal, 800 uh, math. He's now a professor of philosophy in Ohio. He would have to drive 40 minutes to get to an LCMS church, and they're doing bad Pentecostalism at 10.30 a.m. And I forget that I'm in Orange County, and I've got a half a dozen churches that do the classic liturgy every single Sunday morning. He would have to drive the better part of an hour, and even if he did it, for the sake of the Lord's Supper, he'd have to endure a bad Pentecostal service. I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. Um, If the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod goes under, I can't switch to EV free. I can't switch to local Baptist church. It's an awful choice, and nobody should ever have to make it. Real quickly, how common is a story like this? fairly common. When we come back from this break, I'm sure someone listening has come up with this one. All right, I've got a trump for you. I've got the ace that is going to take all the tricks in this little card game we've been playing. It's the book of James, and James makes it very clear. You got no works, there's no evidence for faith, there's no faith. I don't have to look into your heart. I can look at your life, and if you are not living that life of Christian works, and James lays out a whole list and a whole catalog of things that you ought to be seeing in the Christian life. If I'm not seeing those things, I can pretty much say, you're not a Christian. Or maybe you'd put it this way, you're not really born again, or maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit. Does the book of James take everything that we've been discussing for an hour and a half and put it away, throw it down the tubes? Does the book of James undo what Scripture seems to say, which is that Christians are saved by the grace of Christ, the shed blood on the cross, even when they sin after faith. James seems to make it sound like no good works, no faith, and there's a big problem there. Rod will answer that question when we come back. A voice in the wilderness of American evangelicalism. You're listening to Issues Etc. Like what you hear? Please support this worldwide outreach with a tax-deductible contribution today. Rod, I asked about James before, and the reason I ask is because in the course of the many conversations I have on this program, inevitably, after a conversation like this, I will get the James email from Roman Catholic listeners, from the evangelical listeners. everybody. Now, my answer, here's my standard response. I've even put it in a little document I call standard responses. Okay. James says faith without works is dead. So, let's follow James to his conclusion. If one lacks works, then the problem isn't, let's tack on some works to a faithless life and everything will be okay. Okay. James says without without these works there, faith is obviously not alive, therefore not in existence. The person's real problem is that they lack faith. What they need to hear again 
is the conviction of their sin in the Word of God's law, mm-hmm. and they need to hear that word of forgiveness in Christ that engenders and works faith. Mm-hmm. And then James seems to indicate, with faith in hand, works will not be a problem. <laughs> okay. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's as good as can be done, Todd. Uh, All right, I won't push it any farther than that. Yeah, well, go ahead and break in on me. It's as simple as this, folks. James says the problem with a workless faith is that there's no faith, and the answer to that is not more works, not get busy and do works. That won't get you anywhere, even in James's book. But you preach Christ, which brings faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the message of Christ. Then James doesn't have anything to say beyond that. Sarah is calling from Colorado Springs. Sarah, welcome to Issues Etc. Thank you. Um, I've been listening to your show for a while, and I enjoy yours very much, and also White Horse Inn. And um, as a mother of three younger children, three, eight, and nine, I get kind of confused on how I am to train them. I feel like a lot of it is moral training, and if they don't have any knowledge of the, you know, of morality, they certainly can't do it. But then how do I end up not raising, especially my eldest, to be a legalist? All right, Sarah, thank you. Rod, what do you say? I mean, this is kind of the practical question with regard to, okay, you've given us this law and gospel message of Scripture. I don't want to raise moralists. I don't want to raise legalists. I'm dealing with my children every day. Well, this is this is going to be from the hip and no better, but I'll I'll for you can evaluate it for what it's worth. I'm convinced that the calling of a Christian mother or mother in general is not just a hard calling, it's almost an impossible calling. It's so difficult. You have to adjudicate righteousness all day long. And when the old Lutherans talked about the orders of creation, um, the Schopfuchsordnungen, and they talked about the family as one of them, and the school and the governmental system and so forth, the, the calling of a Christian father, I think, is if he gets home and everything is in a total schmozzle, that maybe he can bring the gospel to bear when she's gotten painted into a corner by adjudicating righteousness all day and is exhausted. And he might be able to say, look, let me take the kids for a while and see what I can do here. He's going to be the priest to his family in a particular way, and that is that you've got to obey your mother. It's the way it is. But I'm not your mother, and I'm not here to uh, do what your mother does, only to the second or third power. I want to say to you that um, the, the application of this is that there's more to all of life than just failing at the law. Uh, the father can be a priest in this way, and I think it's built into things such that there's hope where there is no hope. Um, let me give you one example. Can I take a couple of minutes? Yeah, just a, <clears throat> a, one or okay. two, please. Let me give you one. This is actually true. 16 years old, I belong to a high school fraternity. We go out and get drunk one night. Uh, I'm driving carefully drunk, but I get smashed anyway in my car, and I call my dad, and I say, Dad, uh, I just smashed up the car. He said, where are you? And I told him, I said, ironically, I'm close to home. He said, stay there. Uh, I'll come and get you all. I had five drunk friends there. Took them all home, took five drunks home, takes me home. We get into the house. First thing he does is he says to my mother, uh, we need to be left alone, two of us. So he and I go into a room. He puts his arm around me. He said, what are you feeling? I said, I'm shaking. He said, that's shock. That's normal. Don't worry about it. 
What else? And I don't remember even what I said. I was just crying. I was 16 years old. And he looked at me and said, you know what I think you need? I think you need a new car. Why don't you go looking this week? See what you can find, and I'll take my lunch hours when you find something. Let's, uh, let's find something for you. I'm a theist because of that 10 minutes. How, how is that? It was too good to be true. He could have grounded me till 2045, and any jury would have said he was righteous in doing it. You know, you made the point by way of example that I was going to add uh, for our caller there. And that is, the center of the Christian family isn't discipline. Yeah. The center of the Christian family is the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of discipline involved along the way in the yep. nuts and bolts of working this out. But if there is not this confession of real sin, that sin is a reality in our family, it exists in me, Dad, in Mom, in yep. you, the kids, if that is not recognized as the real problem we've got, and if the forgiveness of sins that Christ has won for us all on the cross, His blood covers us all, and that means we can forgive one another with His forgiveness, if the forgiveness of sins isn't there, then all we're left with is discipline, which is going to produce a generation of legalists and moralists. The forgiveness of sins, on the other hand, produces a generation of Christians. And there's yeah. a big difference. Yeah, I think it's not by accident that Paul particularly appeals to the fathers in Ephesians. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Do not provoke your children to wrath. He has got to have something else to offer other than more discipline. All right, now we've only got about a minute here. The last question. We've been talking about the sad and the mad alumni of Christianity. We started with this message of the gospel. For those who have been sitting broken by the church, maybe they've languished in the pew, haven't heard this in a long time. They need to hear it again. Give it to us one more time. Hopefully we can start them on a life, the Christian life, rather than the life of moralism and legalism. The message is too good to be true, but it really is. It's too good to be true. And that is that with all of the failure and all of the mess and all of the lack of improvement and all of the trying and all of the despairing and all of the mess of it all, Christ's cross will save you just by itself. Uh, the person who just says, I'm bankrupt, he's all I got, even in my Christian life, he's all I've got, and bets the blue chips on just that and takes no credit for it, things are better than you think. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, thank you very much for being our guest. You bet. Remember when you knew just how much of a wretched sinner you were and how great a Savior Jesus is? How great it was to hear that Jesus had actually paid for your sins too. Not just the, not just the sins of those who seem to have it all together, but even you, as wretched as you were, you knew how blind you were. You knew how wretched. You knew what a scumbag of a, Christ, of a, of a sinner you were. And someone, some, somewhere down the line, a little after that, told you that if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't be so much of a scumbag sinner. You wouldn't be so blind. You wouldn't be such a wretched sinner. And maybe you believed them. And maybe that message has driven you to despair because in spite of your best efforts, you can't deny who you are, especially when you hear it drummed into your head again and again of what you're supposed to be. You know what? You are, I am, Rod is, we all are still that wretched sinner, and Jesus still is that great Savior. It is still the best good news. It's the only good news that makes us a Christian and keeps us a Christian. 
that Jesus has paid for all of our sins, even our sins, as great as they are or ever will be. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. If you appreciate this Issues Etc. Classic, please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. You can make a financial contribution by check, make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio, and send it to LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for thinking of us during the difficult summer months.